elders, one of the supported missionaries at this church as well. It's an honor to open God's word with you this morning. To have this conversation with you about what Jesus had a conversation. We, we all have different kinds of conversations, don't we? They're the, the greeting conversations. They're the, hey, how you doing? Fine, how are you? I can even do that one in Chinese. Ni hao. Hao. Ni na. <laughs> They're the, the cliche greetings. Hey, how you doing? Uh, just making it. And I kind of handle it day by day. If I turn my microphone on, you'll hear me even better. I knew I sounded quiet. Oh, that's much better. Those cliches. How you doing? Just fine. Making it day by day. Hanging in there. Kind of the casual conversations. Hey, how you doing? How's your weekend? Oh, it was pretty good. You know, we did some chores in the morning, took the kids to the pool in the afternoon. We cooked out that evening. Although Sunday evening, I just had to get back to work. I had so much stuff going on at work. Yeah, me too. Actually, I've traveled a ton, so, you know, I just kind of laid low this weekend. But sometimes we have deep conversations, right? Hey, man, how you doing? Well, kind of, to be honest, I'm, I'm not feeling too good. Like, I guess several friends of mine are, are sick, and one's dealing with the death of their parents. At work is stressing me out, and um, I'll be honest, I'm just kind of discouraged. Yeah, I understand. Understand how that is. I'm really sorry about that. It's unusual, it's rare when the casual conversations all of a sudden become the deep conversations. And somehow Jesus was able to do that an awful lot. Here in John, Annette read John chapter 4, this is the sixth conversation that Jesus, that John records that Jesus has. So as we listen to this conversation, we're going to kind of walk through it again. I think there are a number of things we can learn about Jesus, things we can learn about what it's like to have a healthy conversation, but mostly, I trust this morning, we'll learn a lot about what's true of us as well. So we're going to walk through this conversation. Seven scenes. John kind of pictures seven scenes here as we go through. We'll observe, we'll interpret, and then maybe apply what that's like for us. Let me pray again if I could. Father, we do pray this morning that you would come and we would bring you honor and glory. Jesus, we pray to you that we would hear you speaking to us as well, asking us questions. Holy Spirit, come illumine our hearts. Would you speak and take God's words and, and my words and apply it to our lives that we might do that first thing, glorify the Father. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. Scene number one, John 3 through 8. Jesus comes, it's, he's tired, John tells us. He comes to sit beside the well about the noonday hour. He's beat, he's tired. Maybe tired physically, maybe tired even spiritually and emotionally. Commentators would say already early in his ministry, the weight of ministry might be pressing upon him. So he's sitting there resting. His disciples have gone off for food, but he's purposeful as well. He had a reason for coming there. The text says that he had to go through Samaria. The word is must there, D or D-I in the Greek. And uh, often we think that word must is kind of this, uh, uh, it's kind of a logical necessity. I must do this. I have to do this. 
But when John uses the word must, he is talking about a divine necessity. It's a divine plan. Ten other times in the book of John, there, this word must is used, and it's because God wanted something to happen. So Jesus doesn't just happen. He actually shows up and he comes to this well because that was his plan. Now, he was tired. Here we see Jesus' humanity. He was a man. John starts the, God, John starts the story with Jesus the word of God, the word was God. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here already in chapter 4, we see also the humanity of Christ. We get a glimpse of him being tired. And we see the woman comes in, verse 7. The woman of Samaria comes to draw water. Um, why is she coming at noon? Not the hottest time of the day. That's not the best time to do your chores. Why is she coming that day? Well, text alludes to her character, maybe to her reputation. It's likely that she was an outcast. D.A. Carson says he wonders if John is contrasting Nicodemus in chapter 3 with this woman in chapter 4. Nicodemus was a learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. He was a man, a Jew, a ruler, and she was a woman, and a Samaritan, and a moral outcast. Imagine how she was feeling coming to that well. She was coming to avoid other people. She was coming because it wasn't comfortable to come with others. Maybe you've had that feeling of, of being left out sometimes. On the team, everybody's picked except for you. Or somehow everyone was at an event and they all left and they left you there as well. Maybe you were teased as a kid in class or maybe you're teased at work now for being a believer. What does it feel like? Well, that's what she's feeling as she comes up. She's alone, she's left out, maybe even feeling condemned. Scene two, verses nine, or verses seven and following. So Jesus starts the conversation. He says, hey, give me a drink. Again, he shows his humanity. He shows his need. He's thirsty. He has a need. He needs water. But he's also initiating this conversation with this woman. The woman, on the other hand, then responds, wait a minute. Why are you, a Jew, talking to me, a Samaritan woman, asking me for a drink? That is not appropriate. Jews, as, as a woman... And Jesus were, were meeting, there were four invisible walls that should have been separating them. The walls of religious, religious walls, gender walls, racial walls, and moral walls. I thought of the West Side Story. Maybe you guys have seen the recent movie, West Side Story, came out last year. If you're old like me, I think of the 1961 version of West Side Story. You know, the Jets and the Sharks, their animosity, their hatred, they're despising each other, they're willing to kill each other. Well, that's what it was like for the Jews and the Samaritans. But yet here is this Jew talking to a Samaritan. I think in our culture today, if I'm honest, uh, in our polarized culture we're erecting a lot of walls, a lot of invisible walls. We're creating those barriers, building them up, defending those invisible walls, the walls that I believe Jesus came to tear down. So here's Jesus 
meeting this woman, talking to this, this outcast, this woman, is that where you would expect your religious moral leader, your model of how you should live, is that where he should be? Well, maybe that's exactly where our religious moral leader, our model would be. Talking to this woman. He had a plan. He was going to a foreign, he's going cross-culturally. He's going to a place of terrible prejudice, hostile lands. He was going to the well, to Jacob's well. He's going to talk to this woman. Knowing that if he were to take water from a Samaritan woman, typically in that culture, that would make him unclean. A little tangent here, a little theological tangent, kind of cool. In the scriptures, when an unclean met a clean, it would make the unclean person, it made the clean person unclean, except for, for Jesus. When Jesus met with people, the unclean, he would make them clean. He made the woman clean. He made and touched the lepers and made them clean. He met with the centurion's slave and servant made them clean. He taught, met the woman with bleeding and made them clean. Throughout the scripture, Jesus was not made unclean, but rather was made clean. And the woman here is thinking, you know, you hear her tone of voice, kind of, Annette did it well, think of her consternation, think of her surprise. She knew it was awkward. This is, this is not right. What's this guy doing talking to me? Scene three, starting in verse 10. Jesus saw his need. He also saw her need. She was thirsty. She was there for water, but she had a deeper need. Verse 10, he said, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What's she thinking? In that time, living water actually was a water that came from a stream. It was running water. That was clean and fresh. That was better. What Water out of a, a well or a cistern was often stagnant and not as good. He's saying, I can give you living water. He knows, though, her deep physical need is not just a physical, but it's spiritual as well. But her response is, hey, sir, now listen, you have nothing to draw with water from the well is deep where are you going to get this living water see she sees the challenge here uh, as i mentioned in ordinary days the, again this the jews would expect good water to come from a, a water from a stream and the woman wants to know how in the world do you go to get this um, but the Jews and in Jewish literature had a different way of talking about living water as well. It wasn't just the physical water. The Jews using the uh, living water in terms of the thirst of our soul for God. They often spoke of the quenching of our thirst with living water. In Isaiah, he says, Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. The psalmist in Psalm 42, one of my favorite says, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts for you, O God. And Isaiah, Jehovah promises, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and the streams on dry ground, and I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. My blessing will be on your descendants. Ezekiel says, describes the future time when water will be flowing from under the threshold into the house towards the east. And even Zechariah says, living waters in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and half of them towards the western sea. 
D.A. Carson says this about the Old Testament. My people, in Isaiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And Carson says, they have rejected the fresh running supply of God's faithful goodness. Instead, to choose stagnant waters of cisterns that they prepared themselves, discovering that even their cisterns were cracked leaving them with nothing to sustain life and bless. So don't miss the illusion. Jesus says, I'll give you living water. She's thinking, okay, it's cleaner water than what's in this Jacob's well, but he's pointing to a spiritual need. He's pointing towards knowing this God. He's pointing towards eternal life. Scene four, he keeps having a conversation. So he says this time, hey, go call your husband. And she rightly says, I I have no husband. He says, well, you're right that you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. You have spoken truly. He is now pointing her need, identifying to her she doesn't just need physical water, but spiritual water. She's thirsty, but maybe thirsty for a relationship, thirsty for love, thirsty for belonging. Go call your husband. Now, Jesus wasn't doing this to be mean, he didn't, but he wanted to show her that she had a real spiritual need, not just a material need. He was coming to her with an offering. Uh, the gift was to meet that need she had, and that's what he was offering. And notice he doesn't condemn her. You can hear it in her words. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, now maybe that's because he just told her all about her five husbands and the other guy. And that's true. But what's interesting is that uh, the Samaritans didn't accept any prophets after Moses. So they just had the old, they just had the Talmud or the Torah, just the first five books of the Bible that we have. The Jews had, they didn't believe in a prophet. Somebody said, I perceive you're a prophet. Leon Morris says this, um, that they, again, they only, uh, acknowledged ones after Moses, but Deuteronomy 18.18 18 says this, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. He's pointing out, and she's going, Sir, I believe you're a prophet. She gets a glimpse of what's happening here. He's saying something more than just physical. But she gets a little uncomfortable and changes the topic really quickly, right? Hey, uh, let's have a theological discussion. Okay, this well, this is Jacob's well. You're not going to get the water. Where are you going to do Are you greater than Jacob? He said, and we Samaritans say we worship here, but you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem. Where's the best place to worship? She's trying to take him off task. Scene 5, verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Jesus doesn't bite on the distraction. He, he deals with it, but he doesn't kind of get taken off into having an argument. He starts saying, hey, listen, 
real worship is worship in spirit. It's not where you worship, it's how you worship. And he says it's, it's now. Real worship, notice what he says. Uh, it, the time is, uh, and now is here. He's saying it's not where, it's who. Worship is in and through me. So the woman responds, well, I know the Messiah is coming and he will tell us all things. I love this quote from Swindoll. He says, so she may have been an immoral woman, yet she was not totally ignorant of spiritual truth. For this is a strong and clear and true proclamation on her part. In fact, she has the same knowledge of one of John the Baptist's disciples, uh, Andrew, who expressed, you are the Messiah. It's interesting that this woman, this Samaritan woman, actually has a better picture of who Jesus is than the Jews did at that time, and even his disciples. Because she's thinking, wait, she's a prophet? Hey, the Messiah's coming. He's going to tell us all things. The Jews were waiting for a, a reigning Messiah, right? One who's going to overthrow the Roman government and bring them freedom. But she's thinking more accurately of this true prophet. So here's this immoral woman wondering, why in the world is this guy talking to me? He's talking about living water, and then he, I see he's a prophet. The Messiah's coming. And then scene six. Wait for it. Jesus says, I who am speaking am he. Drop the mic. Wow. Mind blown. What is she thinking? She started talking to this guy that she shouldn't be talking about water, and now he says, I am the Messiah. As I was preparing for this, it took me a while to stop not crying at that part. Oh, my gosh. This is who we've been waiting for. Peterson in the message translates it this way. I am he, said Jesus. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Jesus is declaring for the first time in the book of John to a Samaritan woman his true identity. He's telling her, I am the Messiah. Well, we don't hear what she says after that to Jesus. Because if you skip down a little bit, what does she do? She just drops her water jar, takes off running into town, yelling and screaming now, starting a conversation with the people of town. Hey, come see the man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? It's amazing. As she drops her jar, I think a couple things are true. One, she uh, is hurrying to tell others. Two, it's a picture of conversion or this true confession and confirmation that she has found the living water she knows him jesus and she's planning to come back she's gonna come back and see this guy she shouts hey he said all that i ever did now it would be unlikely for the elders of sychar to actually accept theological information from this type of woman but i just wonder if uh she uh, didn't say anything specific she didn't preach at them she didn't tell them truth she just told them about this man 
So I wonder if her manner was so sincere, her invitation so urgent that they did immediately proceed to the well to investigate. And that's scene seven. It's really not the woman and the men, it's any, and woman and Jesus anymore. It's the end of the conversation. Now Jesus does, he is going to talk to his disciples. Uh, but that's a whole nother sermon. We're not going there. But look at the response, verses 39 and following. People came out to come see Jesus. Because of what she said, people came to talk to him. He stayed there for two days, and they confessed at the end, we believe because of what the woman said, then we believe because of what Jesus said. And their proclamation was, he indeed is a savior of the world. Not just the savior of Jews, not just the savior of Samaritans. They get it too. He's the savior of the world. So it's a great story, great conversation, but how does it apply to you and to me? I'll be honest, as I first started working on this, as I have taught this many times, that Randy and I talked about times we've actually taught this passage as well, it's typically kind of about be like Jesus. Here's how you can share the gospel with other people. But I'll be honest, as I wrestled and was encouraged by others about this passage, that I don't think that's the main focus. At least that's not what we should focus on. Rather, we should focus on the fact that we are the woman. We are the woman. We should identify with her. And you might be sitting there thinking, hey, Don, I'm respectable man. I'm going to church. I don't have to go draw a well in the middle of the day. But we are the woman. Whether you're a believer, whether you're one like the woman, like the townspeople who have experienced Jesus, have, have experienced the living water, or maybe you're not sure who this Jesus is. Maybe you're not quite sure, but you're here today because maybe someone told you about him. And that's why you're here this morning. All of us need to realize that we're like the woman. We are needy. We are desperately thirsty. We're desperate for water, but we're for the living water. We try and fill our cisterns up with different things, but our cisterns are leaky. A couple of weeks ago, I mean, if you were here, I talked about how our, our lives are filled. How do we get all the air out of the bottle? Well, we pour the water or God's love into our lives, and that gets all the stuff out. Here, John and Jesus with the woman are telling the same kind of story, just a little different metaphor. We're needy like the woman. And if I can tangent for a second as well, remember what she said when he said, go get your husband? And, and she said, well, I have no husband. And that was true, but that was just some of the truth. We need to, I think, realize, at least I realize myself, that I'm like the woman that when I confess my sin, I sometimes confess some of my sin, but not all of my sin. I need to confess all of my sin to come to Christ, to experience his love and his forgiveness. We're needy. Uh, a philosopher, a theologian, Augustine said in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Bill Bright, paraphrasing Blaise Pascal, says there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So we sometimes fill our lives up with our own and trust and fill our with our own cisterns. 
And if Jesus were then to come to you and ask you to go get something, what, what would he ask you? He asked her, go get your husband. What might he ask you? Hey, go get your Facebook and Instagram and your Twitter list of friends. Hey, go get your bank statement. Hey, go get me a picture of your house and your really fancy car. Hey, go get your streaming history and your web browsing history. Hey, go show me your business card with all the titles on it. Hey, get your kids' graduation pictures. Are they college or high school or first grade? What would he ask you to go get to show you your spiritual need, to point you to him? Well, we're the woman. We're needy. We're also, I trust, as we meet Jesus, we're changed. Now, maybe it's a little conjecture on my part, but as you go through this conversation, I just wonder if her countenance changed. She goes from an argumentative kind of skeptical, then curious, and then excited. And I wonder what she looked like when she dropped her jar and took off. Just imagine this glow of, I found the living water. It's kind of like that, you know, when you were first dating somebody, or maybe parents, you're when your kids start dating somebody, and they come home and start talking about this boy or girl, and their, their smile gets bigger, and their face softens, and there's a twinkle in their eye. I just wonder if that's true for her. And it's true for us. I, I'll uh, confess that uh, as I talk about my wife now 39 years later, 41 if you include dating, as I talk about her not enough in her presence, but when I talk about her, there's still this tenderness, this care, this appreciation, this love in my voice, in my face, I think, because she's so important. Well, when we meet Jesus... We hope that's true, though I'll confess I don't know if my face changes that much when I talk about Jesus. I wish it did. So we need to be like the woman and meet Jesus. We'll be changed. Meet him regularly, daily, spend time with him, talk to him, read his word, have conversations with him, let him ask you questions and then be honest about the answers. And if you haven't met Jesus here, if you're here today and haven't met Jesus, I would love for you to come talk to me after the service. I would love to tell you all the things he's told me about myself and that he still loves me and he loves you as well. So come talk. Let's talk. Lastly, if we're the woman at the well and we've experienced Jesus, we, we're needy, we're changed, but then we do tell others. It, it seems like it'll be natural. It's it's normal. It's a byproduct that we would tell others about Jesus. We would run into town as well. She couldn't wait. Now, she didn't wait to get into Bible study. She you know, didn't go to Sunday school classes. She didn't take an evangelism class. She just went and told what, what little she knew. She went and told the townspeople, and it was enough. They came out as well to see him. She told him about a person. She told him about Jesus. I was listening to a podcast this week, and Rick Langer, as he talks about kind of talking to others, said, we need to be witnesses, not attorneys. I think sometimes in our culture, we're attorneys. I'm going to explain to you and give you reasons and proofs and argue, and, and there might be a time for that, but we just need to be a witness. Hey, I met this man. He's changed my life. Could he be the Christ? 
he taught, she talked about what was important to her. And uh, I'll, last confession, not forever, but just this morning. If you've met me for a while, you probably know me. And if you just know me for a little while, you probably have heard me talk about fishing. Unfortunately, you've probably heard me talk about fishing more than about Jesus. And that's to my detriment and yours. That's to my shame. I should love my Jesus much more than I love my fishing. So the woman did ask questions. Jesus asked the woman questions, and then the women did ask questions of the townspeople. She didn't just proclaim. She said, could this be the Christ? That's a great way as you're in conversation with people to ask questions. Deborah Tannen, who's a Georgetown linguist, says, we live in an argument culture where we're building up arguments and defending ourselves. Let's be like the woman who just asks questions and listens. As we are like the woman, we admit our need, we ask him to change us, and we tend to go tell others about Jesus. And if I don't find myself talking about Jesus, maybe you don't, maybe the issue is I need to talk to Jesus more. I need to experience the living water. I need to spend time in his word. I need to engage in him so that it will be natural for me to talk to Jesus. So I'd encourage you to have conversations. Mostly have conversations with Jesus. Tell him your desperate need. Tell him you expect him to change you. Ask him to look for opportunities to tell others about him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you come to us and speak to us and you point out our need for you daily, regularly. Lord, would we be changed by your love and your living water and would we tell those around us about you? and what you have done. All this we pray for your glory and in your name. Amen.